If we've not met before, I'm Phil. It's a pleasure to see you. And we're going to spend some time in the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible. And tonight, we are finishing our little excursus in Genesis. And um, we're going to be finishing finishing off Genesis 11 and dipping into 12, because I can't resist. John T. promises that one day we'll carry on with Genesis which is very exciting because it's very long. Uh, We're not going to do that straight away. So the the plan is over the next three weeks um, following this one, the services are going to be particularly geared towards inviting friends, maybe who aren't Christians, to come and hear about Christianity. Especially we're going to be thinking about why we believe, why believe anything, thinking about our reason, thinking about emotion, think about how things just make sense, and particularly wanting to show how Christianity makes sense in every way we need it to. So it is believable. So that's the next few weeks. Um, April, we're going to be gearing up for Easter and, and fixing our minds on Christ, his death and his resurrection. And then in May, we're going to be looking at the Lord's Prayer. Very exciting. Because it's the end of our series in Genesis, uh, we've got a special treat for you. In the, after the meal, which we have after the service, John T and I are going to do a Q&A. Uh, for you on anything you want to ask about Genesis 1 to 11. Let's try and keep it to Genesis 1 to 11. Um, There's all sorts of stuff that we haven't addressed. There's some big questions that come up in Genesis, like, why did people live for hundreds of years? And we haven't really addressed some of those questions head on. This is your opportunity to ask those questions. Uh, There'll be bits of paper there um, for you to write down questions, hand those in, and we'll have a bit of a chat and a conversation. It's going to be fun. Okay? So that's later on. But for now, let's finish up in Genesis, and we're in Genesis 11, and we're going to start at verse 10. Are you ready for the final genealogy of this, this series? Okay, it's a good one. This is the account of Shem's family line. Two years after the flood, when Shem was 100 years old, he became the father of Arphaxad. That is a name. And after he became the father of Arphaxad, Shem lived 500 years and had other sons and daughters. When Arphaxad had lived uh, 35 years, he became the father of Shelah. And after he became the father of Shelah, Arphaxad lived 403 years and had other sons and daughters. When Shelah had lived 30 years, he became the father of Eber. And after he became the father of Eber, Shelah lived 403 years and had other sons and daughters. Then when Eber had lived 34 years, he became the father of Peleg, which I always read as Pegleg, but it's not. It's Peleg. So not tonight. And after he became the father of Peleg... Eber lived 430 years and had other sons and daughters. When Peleg had lived 30 years, he became the father of Reu. And after um, he became the father of Reu, Peleg lived 209 years and had other sons and daughters. When Reu lived 32 years, he became the father of Serug. And after he became the father of Serug, Reu lived 207 years and had other sons and daughters. When Serug had lived 30 years, he became the father of Nahor. And after he became the father of Nahor, Serug lived 200 years and had other sons and daughters. When Nahor had lived 29 years, he became the father of Terah. And after he became the father of Terah, Nahor lived 119 years and had other sons and daughters. After Terah had lived 70 years, he became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And our little pattern stops. This is the account of Terah's family line. Terah became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran became the father of Lot. While his father, Terah, was still alive, Haran died in Ur of the Chaldeans, in the land of his birth. Abram and Nahor both married. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, 
And the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah, and she was the daughter of Haran, the father of both Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai was childless because she was not able to conceive. Terah took his son Abram, his grandson Lot, son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, the wife of his son Abram. And together they set out from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. Terah lived 205 years and he died in Haran. The Lord had said to Abraham, go from your country, your people and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abraham went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. He took his wife Sarai, his nephew Lot, all the possessions they had accumulated, and the people they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan, and they arrived there. This evening, I want you to have a crisis of faith. All right? I want you to have a crisis of faith. Not in a everything falls apart and you don't know what you believe anymore kind of way. In a different kind of way, I want you to have a crisis of faith. That's what we're going to be thinking about tonight. In the Christian life, we have, and we should have, many crises of faith. Now, a crisis point is is the interesting point in any story. Okay, we kind of, things get set up and then something happens, crisis moment. So before we can think about what it means for us to have a crisis of faith, which we'll come on to, we need to think about the whole story thing and where a crisis comes in. Now in Writer's Digest, which tells you how to write stories and stuff well, um, it tells you about the different stages that are needed in any good story. Jonty boiled a kettle. Boiled a kettle? Makes it sound like you put it in a word. Jonty boiled the kettle is not a good story, as well as he may boil the kettle. A story needs stages. Things need to build up. And the the two first stages in any good story are the setting and the crisis. Setting and crisis. The setting is the setting, okay, where things are introduced. You're introduced to the characters, the main people you're going to be dealing with. You're introduced to what they do, and um, the setting gives you important information that as the story goes on is going to become relevant. That's the setting. And once you've got the setting, something happens. You have crisis. Now, the crisis isn't necessarily something bad happening, but it's something that breaks into the ordinary life that you've met in the setting. And it's crunch time. It's where everything changes. It's the, what are they going to do moments? Will they? Won't they? And that's what makes any story interesting. The main character who you've just met, their world gets tips upside down, and ordinary life won't be the same again now that this thing has happened. So, for example, Toy Story. Uh, Toy Story, I realize it's actually quite an old film now, but anyway. Uh, it starts where you, you meet um, Woody and the gang and the toys and Andy, who owns them, and they're in the bedroom. It's all very happy. Um, but the crisis comes because Andy has a birthday party. And their toys are all worried because what if he gets a new toy? And he does. And it's Buzz Lightyear. Crisis moment. Because now Andy seems to love Buzz more than Woody. What's going to happen? Will Andy forget about Woody? Crisis time. 
Will he, won't he still be a good owner? What about Woody? What about Bo Peep and all the other ones? Crisis. Now in Genesis, we have the story of faith. We've been looking at the footsteps of faith. People trusting God. And we finally got to the granddaddy of faith in the Bible. Abraham. He'll become Abraham later. But for today, let's stick with Abraham. And in Genesis 11 and 12, we have the, these first two stages of any good story. We have the setting at the end of chapter 11 and the crisis in chapter 12. The crisis of faith. So as chapters 1 to 11 come to a close and the story of Abraham begins in Genesis, we get the setting and the crisis. And we're supposed to ask, will he, won't he have faith in God in this crisis moment? Will he have faith in God? And as we look at Abraham and Sarai's crisis of faith, will they, won't they moment, we're going to learn about our crisis of faith that we need to have. So let's take a look at the setting. So we have uh, this uh, genealogy, like I said, the last one we're going to do for a while. And what this genealogy is doing is taking us from Shem and his family line, which is the line of God's promise and favor, and following it all the way through, all the way through, all the way through, until we get to the next interesting generation in that family line. So let me summarize all of that for you. Are we there yet? 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 Yes, Terah, verse 26, had lived 70 years and he became the father of Abraham, Nahor, and Haran. That's where we wanted to get to. There were the other sons and daughters, but they get passed on. We follow the line. We've got to where we want to get. And then in verse 27, it zooms in then on Terah's family. And as part of our setting, we get his family tree in verse 27 to 30. But let me narrow it down a little bit more for you. Because, um, so you've got Terah, and he has uh, three sons, Abram, Nahor, and Haran. But Haran dies, and Nahor stays behind when they go on their little journey. So the focus really comes down to Terah, daddy, Abram, son, and his wife, Sarai, and their nephew, Lot. He'll prop up later. So in our setting, we've got the characters, Terah, Abram, and Sarai. And in verse 31, we move on from the setting of, okay, who are our characters, to where are they? Have a look at verse 31. So Terah took his son Abram, his grandson Lot, son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, the wife of the son Abram. And together, they set out from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. So Terah takes his family on a journey. Nahor stays, behind. Nahor stays behind. So Terah, Abram, and Sarai set off on this journey from Ur of the Chaldeans to Canaan. Now, Canaan is going to become the promised land that God's going to give the Israelites through Abraham, okay? So that's where they're going to head. But they get distracted along the way. And they decide to stop in Haran. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. Maybe it was particularly pretty. Maybe they had a good selection of coffee shops. I don't know what it was. But they stopped there. And then Terah dies. So that's our setting with this family. Abraham, Sarai, Lot settled in Haran. Now, remember, I said that in a setting, you get details that are going to become important later. Maybe you've had the experience where you've watched a film with somebody. They've seen it before. You haven't. And they say at the beginning things like, oh, did you see that that dog didn't have a shadow? That's going to become really important later. And you're like, 
thanks, I didn't notice, but now I have, you've ruined the entire film for me. I'm going to do that for you, okay, with this story. (laughs) Because there are two little details here which make things interesting later. Verse 30, Sarai was childless because she was not able to conceive. And verse 31, at the end of verse 31, they settled down in Haran. Those are the two details I want you to notice. Sarai doesn't have any children, and she can't have children. That thing I was reading about how to write a good story said this about the setting. Please note that normal life doesn't mean pain-free life. There's suffering here, right, in the setting. There's sadness, unfulfilled desires, a daunting future with no children to carry on the family line and no security to look after um, Abraham and Sarah when they get old. So this setting in this story is tainted with sadness, with fading hope. And the other detail about Abraham and his family is that they've settled down. And when it says they settled down, this isn't that they bought a two-bed semi and they kind of you know, had a good job. It's a much bigger deal than that. I, w- I want you to picture Abraham having a kind of ranch. You know, he, he, this is him with a, he's got lots of animals. He's got a big family. Um, it talks later about him acquiring people. That's having lots of servants. So imagine him having this huge setup, this, this, this kind of small business going. That's his life. That's what it means when he settled in Haran with his family. It was his security. So that's our setting. Are you ready for the crisis? Verse 1 of chapter 12. The Lord had said to Abraham, Go from your country, your people and your father's household, to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abraham went as the Lord had told him and Lot went with him. Abraham was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. He took his wife, Sarai, his nephew, Lot, all the possessions they'd accumulated and all the people they'd acquired in Haran and they set out for the land of Canaan and they arrived there. Do you see the crisis of faith? Let me summarize what's just happened, what we just read. The Lord spoke to Abraham. Yikes! God speaks to him. We've not had a mention of God yet in the whole family line leading up to Abraham in what we've read tonight. But here, God speaks in. Bam! Into their lives. We we, we have this impression that People went around and God was just like talking to them all the time. Actually, we find out later on in the Bible that Abraham and his family were idol worshippers. They weren't living this life of talking to God and relating him, but in speaks God into their setting. And God calls Abraham to, verse 1, leave his country, leave his people, leave his father's household and go to another land God will show him. And God says, I'm going to make you into a great nation. In other words, you're going to have lots of children and they'll have lots of children. More genealogies, on and on. And not just a big family, a great family, God's special family that he's going to pour out blessing on. Do you see that there's been an intrusion on Abraham's ordinary but not pain-free life? And this is where we see the crisis of faith. Because now we're asking, okay, 
How will Abraham and Sarai, who we've just met, react to this? Will they, won't they, have faith in God? Because of the details we saw in the setting, this is a crisis of faith moment. Remember, Sarai can't have children, which makes God's promise of the greatest family on earth sound impossible. And we know that Abraham settled down in Haran, which makes God's call to pick up and go where God wants him to go sound undesirable. Where are you taking me, God? See, for this family that we've met, the promise of God sounds impossible and the call of God sounds undesirable. Those are the two big things. There's the crisis. The promise sounds impossible and the call sounds undesirable. Will he, won't he? Will she, won't she? Will Abraham believe that God will do the impossible through Sarai or won't he believe? Will he believe that this completely unknown land God has called him for is better than the already settled down happy life he's got in Haram? Or won't he? Now we've got an interesting story of faith on our hands. You see, for Abraham to express faith required the call and promise of God to be difficult to believe. For him to express faith required the call and promise to be difficult to believe. In the impossibility of the promise and in the undesirability of the call, right there we get to see if Abraham really trusts God. Think about it. If it had been easy, we wouldn't really know if Abraham trusted God or not, or whether he was just... I know, he's just getting itchy feet in Haran. The coffee shops maybe weren't that good. And he fancied a move. And God says, go to Canaan. He's like, all right, off I go. He's like, okay. It wasn't such a big deal. If it had been easy, we wouldn't know if they really trusted God's promise of this big family. Oh, we just assumed that Sarai would have some children eventually anyway. So, oh, a big family. That kind of makes sense. No, 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 no. We're told that she can't have children. We're told that they're settled in Haran. So in this crisis of moment, will they or won't they have faith in God? And this teaches us that faith requires crisis to be seen. Faith requires some tension, some difficulty in order to be expressed and for God to be really trusted. It's the difference between these two scenarios. Imagine we go on a car journey together, and I'm driving, um, which is always safe. And I've never had an accident, but now I say that. Anyway, we're on a little journey, and we come to London Bridge. And as we approach, I turn around and I say to you, now I know we're crossing over a big river, but trust me, I got this. And you're like, great. (laughs) I assumed you'd be fine driving over London Bridge. Our journey continues, and we make it to the wilds of Yorkshire, where I'm from. And we come to another bridge and another river. And this bridge is a good 400 feet above a raging river, and the bridge, bridge is generous, is a small wooden strip, and you can see it shaking in the wind. And I turn to you and say, I know we're crossing a very big river, but trust me, I've got this. 
Now you've got to have faith in me. You have a crisis of faith moment. Do you jump out the car and run for your life? Or do you think Phil's a pretty good driver? I think he's got this. I'm going to stay in the car and cross the bridge. Trust me. You see, the impossibility and the hardness of the situation is precisely the opportunity to really express whether or not you have faith in me. And I want us to see that our faith in God shines most brightly when our lives are met with the hard call and impossible-looking promises of God. That's when our faith shines. It's when we have the will-she-won't-she-trust-in-God moments that we have actually a precious opportunity to show we really trust God and not ourselves, like Abraham. Okay, so let's think more about our lives and and the crisis of faith that I say that we need to have. Because you might think, well, it's all right for Abraham. God spoke to him and told him what to do, told him the call and the promise and all that. If only God would come and tell me his promises and how he wants me to live. He's done that. That's Jesus, the son of God. He came to this earth. God's call to Abraham, you see, throughout the Bible develops into Jesus' call to us. Come, follow me. If you want to know what God's call is on the life of every single person in this room, it's come, follow Jesus with your whole life. And when we hear that call, we have our crisis of faith moment, our will, we won't, we trust God moment. So I want you to think about the setting of your life. Okay, if we were to make a a little film of your life, and we were to watch the first five minutes of the story, what would be in the setting? Okay, who would be the important characters? Where would we see you? And what would be the important details? Remember, the normal life isn't the pain-free life. What would be the struggles that we would need to see? The pain, the difficulties. What are the things you love? What are the things that make life settled for you? Okay. Into your life, into that setting, Jesus, the Lord God himself, says, come, follow me. Leave behind your life as you know it. Your life now is to be about me, Jesus says. Live for me, under my care, under my rule as your God. You no longer live for yourself. I'm going to rescue you and I'm going to change your life. Come, Follow me. Now, when that call intrudes on your ordinary life, where's the crisis of faith? Where do you feel the tension when Jesus calls you to trust in all his promises and to give your entire life to him? Because like Abraham, there will be things in our lives that make Christ's call seem undesirable and his promises sound impossible. Now, Phil, does this mean we shouldn't settle down in life and buy houses and stuff like that? Is it anti-settling in that way? It's not what this is about. It's much deeper than that. Because we can become very, we can become very attached to our lives and how we live them that makes it hard for us to really follow Jesus. We can become very attached. 
Our lifestyles can become very precious to us in terms of how we spend our money, how we use our time, who or what really matters to us. And for a lot of us, we've carved out for ourselves a way of life on our terms, and it works fine, thank you very much. Don't touch it, Jesus. I'll follow you, Jesus, but please don't change anything. Or maybe you're here and you're not a Christian and you think about Christianity and say, well, I don't really want God to start questioning my life and my morality or making demands on my life. I'm just quite settled. I don't want him speaking like that to me. Okay, into that setting comes the call of Jesus. Disattach yourself. Come follow me as the one who now defines who you are and where you live and all that kind of thing and what your life is about. And when you hear that call, we feel the crunch. It's unsettlingly total, Jesus' call on our lives. The call of Jesus is to pick up everything, our time, our careers, our children's health, education, and future, our homes, our futures, our money, our relationships, and lay it all at the feet of Jesus and say it's yours. And that's not easy. And that's the point. And this is our will we won't we moment. Okay. So how did Abraham do what seemed to him undesirable? Because he did, didn't he? In verse 4, he went. He obeyed as the Lord told him. How did he do it? How can we follow in his footsteps of faith? Well, the key is this. It's believing that God's call is better. Even though it seems undesirable, it is better. Turn over with me to Hebrews chapter 11, which has been a good friend to us through this bit of Genesis, on page 1209. And we're going to camp out here for a little bit. Because Hebrews 11 tells us a bit more about Abraham and Sarai and their faith. Page 1209, Hebrews 11. Now, Hebrews 11 tells us that Abraham believed that the home God had for him was better than Haran, where he'd settled. Let's read about it. Hebrews 11, verse 15. says, If they, that's Abraham and a bunch of other people, had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had opportunity to return. Verse 16. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore God, therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. So it's saying, if Abraham had wanted to, he could have returned. That's what it says. If they had been thinking of the country, they, could, they had opportunity to return. He could have gone back to Haran with his nice coffee shops and whatever he had in his big life, but he didn't go back. Even though it was undesirable to leave all that and follow God on this crazy journey to an unknown destination and leave his settled life, he believed that the place God had for him was better. In fact, it says he was, he was looking beyond the land of Canaan to the heavenly country God had prepared for him. So faith obeys the call that seems undesirable because of the belief that what God has for us is better. So here's my question. 
will we, like Abraham, believe that the life lived for Jesus is better than the life we leave behind? Will we have faith that the future city God has built for us in eternity is better than this city around us and the life it offers us? So think about where you feel Jesus' unsettling call to make him supreme in your life. Think about where you might feel this. If obedience to Jesus means a change of jobs, or moving to a different city, perhaps to serve a different church, or to care for your family, how would you feel about that? If following Jesus meant taking a promotion hit because of your commitment to church, or your commitment to God's morality, would you? Wouldn't you? If following Jesus meant saying no to a relationship that doesn't honor God above all, will you? Or won't you? If following Jesus means during Have You Ever Wondered Month, telling your friends about Jesus and risk losing their approval, will we or won't we trust Jesus with that? If following Jesus means you need to give up a habit or a sinful action that you're just so settled with, will you? Won't you? Do you see all the little crises of faith that we have? And Abraham calls through the centuries, trust God, do what he says, because what he has for you is better. You might not feel like you know where you're going. The future Jesus calls you to might be totally out of your control, but it's Jesus calling you. You know it's good. So that's how we overcome the crisis of faith. When what Jesus calls us to is undesirable, we believe what he has for us is better. Okay, what about the second thing? When the promises of God seem impossible, how can we follow Abraham and Sarai and and, and believe God? Well, this is what they believed. When things looked impossible, they believed the one who made the promise was faithful. Hebrews 11, verse 11, we get Sarai's example to us. She called Sarah here. She had a change of name. Everyone seemed to in those days. Hebrews 11, 11. And by faith, here's her crisis of faith moment, even Sarah, who was past childbearing age, was enabled to bear children because she considered him faithful who had made the promise. And so from this one man, Abraham, and he as good as dead, came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as countless as the sand on the seashore. When the promise seems impossible, we need to believe, like Sarah did, that that he who promised is faithful. That's what she did. Now, it took her some time to believe that he was faithful. In fact, there were lo- you keep reading the story, there are lots of crisis moments along the way where Abraham and Sarah definitely did not believe that God could do this. And they took matters into their own hands in all sorts of bad ways. So they struggled. But in the end, she did believe that he was faithful. He could do the impossible. And there will be things about our lives which mean we find God's promises um, impossible to believe. Let's think about some of those promises. What are some of the promises of Jesus? 
Come follow me, Jesus says, and I promise to forgive you for all that you've ever done. Anyone here find that a hard promise to believe? That he'll forgive us of everything we've done? That sounds impossible. Follow me, Jesus says, I promise to give you my spirit to change your hearts and to live lives of obedience. Anyone find that impossible to believe? No, Jesus, I'm beyond help. Other people may be. Follow me, Jesus says, and I promise to help you keep going. I'll be with you. I'll help you endure to the end. I promise that eternity will be better. Do you find that hard to believe that you're going to make it through this trial, through this suffering, through this pain? You can't see how on earth God's going to pull you through this one. But do you hear Sarai? She's cheering you on. She said, I had no children. I couldn't have any children. And God promised me, and it's a promise that we don't all receive, but for her it was that she would have as many children as stars in the sky. And she says, I admit, I really struggled to believe. But in the end, in my crisis of faith, I did believe he could do it. And he did. And there are some things which God would promise us, which, well, we would like him to promise us, which he doesn't. And maybe for some of us here, actually having children would be something we wish God promised us. But you know what? In Christ, we can be confident we do have the promises we need. So do you see that right there, when the promise of God is hardest to believe, right there is the opportunity for us to express faith. It might feel like weak faith, fumbling faith, spoken through tears, but the crisis does give you a moment to say, okay, Jesus, I believe you. I know you're faithful. I believe you can forgive even me. I believe you are at work in me. I believe you can get me through this. And sometimes we will fail to believe. Oh boy, did Abraham and Sarah fail to believe at times. And if you're here and you're thinking, I I can see how I've resisted the call to give everything to Jesus. And I can see how I've not always trusted his promises. Then remember that's why Jesus came. Jesus came, died and rose in our place to forgive us for our faithlessness. And he's the one who will strengthen us and strengthen our faith in our will we won't we moments. When the promise, the call seems undesirable, we need to believe it's better. When the promise seems impossible, We need to know that God is faithful and believe it. Now, I was trying to think, what are the ways in our culture right now that those crisis of faith moments are especially hard and challenging for us? And one thing came to mind in particular, which I think our culture finds undesirable and impossible about following Jesus. And that's Jesus' call to sexual purity. Think about it. Jesus' call to us is for sex to be between a man and a woman in marriage. And then in marriage to be loving, other-centered, and exclusive to your spouse. And it got me thinking how our culture says that that kind of sexual morality is undesirable and impossible. Why would you want Jesus' restrictive vision for sex when you can have sex when you want with who you want? 
is undesirable. Only in marriage, only with your spouse, not going after your own fulfillment. And anyway, this kind of sexual restraint outside of marriage and this attitude of self-denial in marriage is impossible. In fact, it's probably bad for your health. We've got desires and we've got needs and it's impossible not to just act on them, right? Do you see? The call of Jesus to God-honoring sex seems undesirable and impossible. And it presents us in this cultural moment with a crisis of faith moment. An opportunity to show that Jesus' way is better. And with his help, it is possible to be faithful. Will we, won't we, stay faithful to our husbands and wives? Will we, won't we, Safe sex for marriage when we're dating or engaged? Will we, won't we, live out Christ-like celibacy in singleness? Can I just say this to you? If you feel that following Jesus in this way in particular is difficult, it feels like a crisis of faith moment, that is a really good sign. Because it means you're taking the call of Jesus very seriously. You may never have thought about sexual purity as a faith issue. But at root it is. So my prayer is that we will help each other believe that the call of Jesus is better than the world's call to so-called sexual freedom. That we would help encourage each other that the promises of Jesus to forgive us and strengthen us are real. Because he is faithful. Now doing something difficult is always made easier if the person asking you to do it has done it first. Right? So if... um, You say to me, Phil, it's time to go skydiving. I'm going to say to you, great, you're coming with me and you're going out the plane first. All right? So when you hear this call of Jesus and it's for your whole life to follow him and your faith feels weak, remember this. Jesus went first in this walk of faith. Think about the call of God on his life. It meant it was the most undesirable call imaginable. The call on Jesus' life was to endure the cross in our place, to bear the wrath of God for the wrong that we've done. But he did it. Actually, Abraham's not the ultimate hero of faith. Jesus is. So what's the secret? What kept him going? Well, he knew... I'll turn over to it. Let's have a look. Hebrews 12. Turn over the page. It's so good. Hebrews 12, verse 1. What, what, what was Jesus' faith? What did he believe? Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, all these people like Abraham, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. Here's what kept him going through the cross. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. 
Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. He went first. He endured the cross because he believed in something better on the other side, resurrection and our salvation through his death. Oh, an undesirable call the cross was. But he went through it. And so if we think that we've got a hard call of faith, take a look at Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane where he wrestled through this crisis of faith moment. It was such a crisis moment. And you read about Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane before he went to the cross. And it's a real will he, won't he moment. Will he, won't he follow God's plan to go to the undesirable cross? And he did. He went first. He believed his father was faithful. He obeyed the call. He can help us in our crisis of faith. See, I told you, we need a crisis of faith. Every day, in big ways and little ways, where we show, we have the opportunity to express that we believe that the life and the future that Jesus has for us is better. Well, we get to show that in that moment, we believe that God is faithful. Let's pray. Lord God, as we look at our own lives, we see the tension, the pain, the difficulties of our lives, the ways in which we struggle to want to follow you. And we admit that to you now. We see the ways in which we struggle to believe that you really can keep your promises because things seem so hard. But we pray that you would help us and strengthen our faith that we would fix our eyes on Jesus, knowing that he has done this already, that he can help us. Lord Jesus, I pray for my brothers and sisters here, I pray for all of us, that we would believe that the call to follow Jesus and leave everything and follow him is better by far than living our own way. That we would believe that you can keep your promises and especially that promise to one day take us home to that better country because you are faithful. Lord, our faith is weak. We do believe. Help us in our unbelief. In Jesus' name, amen.